It's an interesting time of year, isn't it? I mean, we've got so much going on for us personally. Just came back last weekend from taking our daughter to college. A lot of you folks are back in school. Was this like the first week of school for the county? Second week sort of for private schools around. So you got that going on. A lot of things happening. So that, it, it, it's, a, it's a weird time of year in the sense that it's almost like a new year without being a new year because you have that, that feel about it. You've gotten ready for it. You've looked forward to it. The, the, the kids are back. And, and the schedule or the norm of life, if you have kids, is sort of the thing. And, and it's an interesting thing to look at um, personally, too, and as a church because a lot of times in church world, we focus on some new stuff about this time of year, and you see a lot of those new Bible studies that are kicking off and, and all that sort of thing, new stuff. So I, I thought kind of if that's the way we're going to look, I want to look at a character in Scripture that maybe can help us deal with some of the stuff that comes around, not just in this kind of school year starting, but but overall. We live in, in a world that, um, well, it, it's looking for, I think, something to believe in something to hold on to, something that they, that, that's solid. And, and I want to look at an example of, of, a, of a man in the Old Testament. His name is Elisha, who lays out quite the example. And, and over the next several weeks, we're going to follow his life. Um, somebody put it this way, Elisha is a man that has ridiculous faith. Ridiculous in the good sense, right? There, there's a lot of words in our English language that, sort of have that dual meaning, ridiculous being one of them. Ridiculous can mean like just ridiculous, it's crazy, it doesn't make any sense, or it can be a positive word. Um, Another one is bad, like you're bad, or no, you're bad. You'd rather be bad than you're bad, right? We get that. My favorite, I know we have some uh, northern, northeasterners, I like how the word wicked becomes a good adjective. It's like wicked awesome, man. What's that? Yeah. Well, there's a couple here that are, yeah. Wicked awesome, man. That means good. Why don't I just say good? I don't know. Not much of an introduction to a sermon. This is good. Well, Elisha is a guy that, that proved by his life that his faith and his impact was in many ways, disproportional to what we would expect of him. We're going to meet him today in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bibles and you want to get to 1 Kings 19, uh, that's where we'll hang out. But most of the verses, I think all the verses are going to be up on the screen as well. So so we, you can follow along either way. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want to, there's some under under the seats there. But but Elisha first shows up in, in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's just read through these verses and then we'll look at them and come back and so tells us this. So Elijah, now here's the confusing part, Elijah and Elisha. I have trouble when I'm looking at some things to remember, is that Ja or Sha? And so what we're talking about here is Elisha who came after Elijah, but a lot of the stories in my mind can get jumbled. So nonetheless, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. 
Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, Elisha says, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. So here is our introduction to Elisha, who will be the successor, prophetically speaking, to Elijah. Are you just as confused as I feel saying those two names over and over? It's kind of, do I say them differently enough? Okay, good. I'm just checking. Sha, ja. Maybe we should, anyway. So we've got these two men. Elijah anoints Elisha to be his successor, and here's where they meet. Now, interesting, what we see in this passage is Elisha is a pretty normal fellow. We don't see in these things this great list of qualifications. He's not one of those that you would expect that would be maybe next in line to be the prophet of Israel. He doesn't have all of those those bona fides, we might say, that, that you would expect. A lot of times when we think about somebody that's going to be used of God, we might think they have to meet certain criteria. They have to do this or do that or do the other thing. Elisha is just pretty much a normal fellow at this point who had been working on the farm with his family. And boy, what a job it was, plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, he himself driving the 12th pair. So what does that mean? Now, I grew up on on the Mary and Leesburg where we had our own little gardens and farms. And my grandfather was, and, and his brother, my uncle Buddy, were kind of the, the green thumbs of the family. And, and I think I've told you this before. I think my parents and my aunts and uncles had children for the express purpose of free labor. Because, you know, that's sort of how it works. We could do the work. And, but, but at the same time, I loved going out with my grandfather, my granddaddy, and working. Now, the great thing about working there is we had power equipment. When we wanted to go into the garden and get it ready, we had a tiller that you pull the cord and it cranked up and you walked behind it. That's good. It does a lot of good work. It tills the soil. It gets it ready, kind of breaks it up. When when we wanted to plow, we had a power uh, piece of equipment that we'd crank up and walk behind it and plow the rows. Now imagine if we go back a few decades before that and to till up that ground I had to grab that pair of oxen and put a yoke on them and walk behind them. I, would, I just want you to think for a minute what that would be like. Now, behind a power tiller, you get the lovely aroma of gas fumes. I guess you could say behind a yoke of oxen, you might get a similar gaseous aroma. It's not the most pleasant thing to do. And boy, the view behind the yoke of oxen. Yes, ah, this is the beauty of nature right here, walking behind. This, is, this was Elisha's life. This is the kind of thing that he was doing when Elijah comes along. He was doing, and I think this is rather interesting to note, faithfully the normal stuff of life that he was to do. He wasn't exceptional in any criteria or qualification we might look for, but rather he was being faithful in the day-to-day execution of the responsibilities he had in his family. And I think that might be one of the things that commended him to God that eventually led to him becoming 
a prophet of God. Incidentally, if you look, as we'll look over the next several weeks in Elisha's life, he's quite a prophet. He does some remarkable things. In fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he is the one that there are more recorded miracles performed by in the Bible other than Jesus. He has quite a ministry. In fact, he has this moment with his, his mentor, Elijah, that he is given or asked for a double portion of the mantle, the blessing, or, or the we might even say the power of the prophet Elijah falls on Elisha, and he executes that remarkably. But it didn't start in any way that you would go, wow, there's something about him. No, he was walking in a field behind a yoke of oxen doing the thing that he was called in that moment to do until along comes Elijah and walks up to him. It tells us particularly what does Elijah do in verse 19. It says, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now, that's maybe insignificant to us. doesn't seem like there's a lot going on there. What does that mean? But in that culture, in that time, that would have significance. Elijah, as the prophet of God, would have been well-known, would have been respected, would have been the one looked up to to deliver the message from God. And when the prophet of God comes along into your neck of the woods, that's a big event. When the prophet of God singles out an individual, that's a big thing. But particularly when the prophet of God would take his cloak or his mantle and lay it over another, symbolically, that's a huge moment. For Elisha, because it says that which up to this point I was under the care of, you are now under the care of. That which provided for me now will provide for you. He is inviting him to leave that life that he had, following along behind those oxen, to go and do something else, to give that up and to become Elijah's mentee. Right? Mentor, mentee, is that right? Okay, good. To follow him and to learn from him. Incidentally, as an aside, 1 Kings 19, Elisha shows up. Next time we hear about Elisha is in 2 Kings 2. Probably five or six or seven years go by where Elisha, having received the mantle and having followed after Elijah, just learns. It's not like the next chapter... He's performing miracles. He is spending time doing some things, getting ready, so that when it's his turn, so to speak, when he becomes the one who follows in Elijah's footsteps, he's ready for it, which is quite remarkable. What what can we learn from this encounter? Here's where I want to spend really the bulk of our time. Two points I want to make today, two things I want us to think about as we face life, as we think about Becoming the kind of people that God can use. Number one, I want you to think about this. You don't have to understand everything to obey immediately. You don't have to have all the answers today to do what God's asking you to do right now. Elisha and Elijah before him live in an interesting time in Israel. They live during a time when uh, there's lots of idol worship. Primarily, the, one of the key idols in that point of, in time in that part of the world is Baal. Baal is an interesting fella. He is a fertility god, half bull fertility god. Remarkably, uh, it sort of permeates all areas and all cultures in Canaan. 
everybody worships Baal. We could even go back a little bit before this encounter between Elijah and Elisha and see an encounter between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where they kind of have the showdown and interesting insights into what it means to worship Baal in that they, they, they decide on that mountain that the prophets of Baal are going to make an altar and Elijah's going to make an altar and the prophets of Baal are going to pray that their god Baal would send fire down and consume the altar or sacrifice or whatever, as will Elijah. Of course, Elijah, being a pretty confident fellow, lets the prophet of Baal go first. And they, boy, did they get going. They go for hours. Nothing happens. And then Elijah begins to needle them. Elijah begins to have fun with them. He says, oh, is, is, your, is your God not paying attention? Is he perhaps away in the bathroom? What's wrong with your God? And then they, they really get worked up. And they begin cutting themselves and mutilating themselves somehow to try to appease Baal so that he will answer their prayer and prove to be the real God. That's one slice of a view into the kind of God Baal was. But when you look at Baal worship in general, I think we could see in our modern day culture some similarities. Two key components of Baal worship. Number one, uh, since he was a fertility God, often the worship of of Baal involved sensuality. Uh, They would have large gatherings and they would, in those large gatherings, indulge in all sorts of sensual pleasures as a way to worship God. Hopefully in doing that, somehow he would be appeased, Baal, and send them fertility both on their crops in the form of rain and fertility on their families in the form of children that would grow and they would be that free labor in the fields we talked about earlier. Kind of a theme running through here. That was one aspect of Baal worship. A second aspect of Baal worship was they they saw Baal sort of as a god in all of nature. And that, that fertility idea, the rain, the plants, the crops that would come, sort of a pantheistic view of Baal, that he was in everything. All of these creations and creatures in nature were the things that uh, had, in, in essence, a part of God in them. Now, we look at our culture, I think we can say we live in a relatively, okay, that's selling it short, we live in a terribly centrally obsessed culture. Is that fair? If you don't believe me, Jersey Shore, Google it, you'll be, be no, okay, that's just one example. There are lot. I mean, there are lots of things that we have in our world that point people toward sexuality and sensuality. We are obsessed with it. Since the sexual revolution, that's become sort of the way that, that everything is progressing. It's thought of as odd anymore to have a biblical view of morality and sexuality and marriage and that sort of thing. That's the exception. Now it's assumed there'll be multiple partners before marriage and all those sorts of things. We know that that's kind of it. The other way we could see that, that we, in our modern-day society, maybe mirror Baal, the culture of Baal, is there are many in our world that look around and see God in everything and everywhere, a very pantheistic view of God. Now, we believe God is creator and created everything, which is but he is distinct from creation. He is separate. He is holy, is one word we use. He is different than creation. A pantheistic view of religion sees God in the, the, the tree is God and the, 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 creature, the critter, creature, critter, critter, aminal, that thing, the 
species of the earth. In them is God, and there's, there's all this thing that, and even in us, this is very Eastern religion, we can see even in us is a, a little kernel of divinity that we need to cultivate, which is not the same as the biblical picture of the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, different entirely. Something about you is, is divine. And so we have these, these things in our world that mirror a very much a, a, a Baal-type worship, a, a culture that, that we face and are very seductive. All around us, people are kind of falling into these patterns of following these ideals and living according to these sort of standards that are put out there. And into that environment, we need to take maybe a little cue from Elisha and Elijah before him, that we can be in this environment people that can make a difference. And one way Elisha began his impact was by not needing all the details to do what God called him to do. It says, particularly in in verse 20, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Could you imagine what that would be like? If you were on your job, probably nobody here is plowing behind oxen. Is anybody plowing behind oxen now, I want to assume? Whatever that is, you're, you're teaching, the new school year started, whatever your business is, you're doing the thing that you do, and in the middle of doing that, along comes somebody that, that you recognize. Oh, let's see. Billy Graham. Can we all agree Billy Graham, godly person? Uh, you know, that's true. He's not going to walk up to where you are, but we're pretending for a minute. Franklin? I like Billy, but okay, Franklin, if that makes you happy. Franklin Graham comes up to you, and he walks up to you, and he puts his Samaritan's purse hat off his head and puts it on your head and says, hey, you're coming with me. You're going to be my vice president. What do you think? I don't know how many would be willing to say, bye-bye, boss. I'm out. Done. Some people might. That would be a big thing. Not the only time we see that happening in Scripture where where somebody is called by God and drops it. We can look at the disciples. What happens with them? Peter, his brother, fishing, having a really bad day fishing. Amen. I can relate to that. And bad day, Jesus comes along, cast your nets on the other side, the, the catch is overwhelming, and then Jesus says to them, I will make you fishers of men, come follow me, and it says they left everything. Another set of brothers, it says they left everything, even their father, who was kind of their boss, the owner of the boat, the one they were working for, to follow Jesus. That's, that's pretty radical stuff. That's pretty crazy. Now, I'm not saying that Tomorrow, if somebody comes up and says you should leave your job, you should. You've got to be sure about those things. Make sure it is Jesus calling. But nonetheless, what is the, the reality that that's a pretty radical step? And, and in all of those situations, none of those folks knew what was coming. They didn't have to understand all the details to take the next step with Jesus. They didn't have to know everything to follow immediately. That's the pattern of God often. As he comes to, in the Old Testament, Abraham. What does he tell Abraham? Go to the land I will show you. I'm not even telling you where I'm taking you. I'm just telling you, go, and one day you'll see it. How many would be willing to do that? Maybe it's not Franklin Graham putting the cap on you and say, come be the vice president of Samaritan Ministries. At least that's something. 
What if he put his cap on, on you and just said, hey, come with me. Quit your job and follow me. What would be your next response? Why? That's what I would want to know. He, what do you mean, follow you? You mean just like, we're going to go out for dinner? Or like, we're going maybe to the headquarters. You're going to give me a tour. You're going to give me a job. You start asking questions, right? I would. What does that mean? Here's the thing. God doesn't always give us all those answers when he prompts us to do something for him. Elijah had no answers. Elijah had no idea what this would mean. I bet if you ask him, he didn't think for the next five, six, seven years he would be basically Elijah's apprentice. Probably had bigger ideas. Probably thought, ah, I can make a difference. But nonetheless, he was willing to leave everything and follow him. God isn't like that. What would it mean if God tapped us on the shoulder but then gave us all the details. In the immortal words of Jack Nicholson playing Lieutenant Colonel Jessup and a few good men, like three of you saw that movie. You can't handle all of those details. There's no way you'd be able to process in your finite mind with, with the things that are overwhelming to you now, all that God might, in a moment, if he were to give you all the details, lay on you. There's no way to know that. And that's not what God is asking you to do, is to know the details. He's asking you to know him and to trust him and to follow him. And sometimes those instructions seems like are intentionally vague. Sometimes God's promptings are very simple, even just one word or one sentence that you know he's asking you to do something. And I'm not even saying it's as big as quit your job and go be a missionary. It might be a totally different thing. It could be in a relationship that there's there's a struggle, that there's whether it's marriage or between uh, parents and children, and there, there's difficulty and there's tension. And it'd be easier just to walk away and, and maybe God's prompting to you isn't, here's how I'm going to fix it, but it's just stay and love. No, no details in that. No promises in that that everything's going to magically get better or immediately get better. But the prompting of God's Spirit to say, you know, this is what I want you to do. And even if you don't know how it's going to work and that it might get tougher before it gets easier, are you willing to obey immediately even though you don't understand fully? Maybe it's in a situation where there's medical issues. I know we have lots of those in our church. And maybe God's word to you is just trust me. Not a lot of details, not a lot of, not a lot of hey, this is how it's going to go, or this is when you're going to feel better, or even this is if you're going to, there's no promises from God that we'll get better this side of heaven. But can we live with that word, trust, even though I don't know the details, and take the next steps? Maybe it's a young adult in a relationship. And, you know, the, the, the realities of the relationship aren't good. And God's prompting you to break it off. Maybe that's the word. Maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe it's a financial thing, a, a need, a bill, a, a pressure. You don't know and 
Then the offering plate comes, and God's prompting to you is give anyway. Even though he doesn't promise that, you know, if you give now, in three days in the mail will be a check for ten times what you need. That'd be easy, wouldn't it? No, but the prop thing is just, you know, all, all of those moments, I think the commonality is do you trust the God who does know the end from the beginning, who does know all the details enough to take that next step? You know, in, in the business world, in different places, we always talk about planning and five-year plans and ten-year plans and all of that sort of thing. Helpful things to do, to look and forecast out and think, where am I going to be and where do I want to go and how do I want to get there? And, and those are all wonderful things, but I think that's not always how God works. God doesn't give us the five or the ten-year plan. God sometimes just gives us the next step and waits for us to take that single next step. We don't have to understand everything. We just have to trust enough to put one foot in front of the other because you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. And the second thing I, I think I see in Elisha's life that's helpful for me and maybe would be for you too is sometimes it's the ones that hold on to the least that God uses the most. What does Elisha do? Crazy thing. He goes to Elijah and says, wait, I'm going to go say goodbye to mom and dad, and I'll be back. And Elijah kind of gives him a little grief. He says, oh, what have I done to you? So Elisha, confronted with that, now has a choice to make. He's confronted with the reality he's not given a lot of details. He's not given a lot of time. It's a moment of truth for him. And what does he do? He goes back. What does Scripture tell us he does in verse 21? He left, went back, took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people. Then he set out to follow Elijah to become his servant. We we, we have a phrase, it's sort of a negative phrase, to burn bridges. Usually that means, you know, kind of cut off some relationships. But in many ways, how do you think dad felt about son killing his oxen and burning his plowing equipment? Sure, dad was thrilled. Way to go, son. Way to follow God. Probably not his thought. But for Elisha in that moment, he made a pretty radical decision. He took some pretty stark, radical action. He took what represented for him security and got rid of it. So you know what? If I'm gonna if I'm gonna do this, if I've been challenged by Elijah and, and more than him by God to take this step of faith, even though I don't know where I'm going or how it's gonna turn out, if I'm being challenged to take this next step, am I willing to trust so much that I don't have a safety net? And what did he do? plowing equipment, slaughtered the oxen, and off he goes. Crazy in many ways to do that. But again, it's often the ones that hold on to the least that God uses the most. Because if you're going to follow God, often that next step is out of your comfort zone. Have you noticed that with God? Often his, his calling moves you a little bit beyond where you're really comfortable Moves you a little bit beyond where you feel secure. Peter. Oh, got to love Peter, right? 
Peter's in a boat. There's a storm. He's a little scared. He's with his buddies, the disciples. They're a little scared. And who do they see on the horizon coming? Well, they don't recognize it at first, but they see someone walking to them on top of the water. It's Jesus. And after being scared, thinking it's a ghost, they finally establish communication. Jesus says, it's me. Peter says what? I want to play. That looks cool, Jesus. Can I try? What do you have to do to walk on the water? Come out of the boat. Got to get out of the boat. Now, not that the boat was the most comfortable place in that moment, I'm sure, in the middle of a storm. But I would think, given the alternative in the middle of a storm, being in the boat or out of the boat, how many vote in the boat? Yeah, most of us. Out of the boat's usually not the more secure place. But Peter had to leave the relative comfort. And, that you know, that's the thing for most of us. We have established these comfort zones. And in some ways, we've convinced ourselves everything is safe and secure here. That we kind of have a little man- measure of control and we have a little measure of, of stability. When in reality, how much control do we really have? It takes that long for something. You know, did you hear about Erica? A little tropical storm thing. Now, when you take your daughter to college up the coast in West Palm Beach, and the track puts like a bullseye on West Palm Beach, and her dorm is on the intercoastal in West Palm Beach, you begin to pay attention a little more closely to these storms. On the one hand, you're like, please, please go to West Palm. She can come home this weekend. On the other hand, you're like, please, please go away from West Palm so she'll be safe. I mean, I've got on my phone a list of notes. Every is it every three hours, two, five, eight, eleven, two, five. I, I put in the coordinates. Like I'm helping the National Weather Service. That's what I'm doing. I'm putting in 17.7 north. You know, I, I have a in, and, and I have outside. I, I say it went this far north. And so when the National Weather Service tells me it's tracking, you know, west northwest, I'm like, no, it's not. It's going west. Max Mayfield on the phone? Yes, sir. Uh, you got some, I know he's not with us. But like I'm, like I'm somehow, I feel like I have control because I've typed these things on my iPhone in a chart in notes that I take care of every three hours diligently. Somehow I am steering the tropical storm and everything's going to be okay. And you're welcome because I think I did okay. No, just <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. When how much control do I have over that? But at least I felt the illusion for a few minutes that somehow I was doing something that was making a difference. And that's a lot of our lives. That's a lot of how we live our lives. We think we're doing something, and we have this measure of control that somehow we have stability and all. And I think God is always out there inviting us to recognize the chaos all around us and to take the first step toward Him. Because it's in holding on to those things that really we have no claim on and we have no control over that can thwart the very thing God is asking us to do in our lives. Elisha had no promises, had no guarantees, had no specifics. All he knew was Elijah came along and threw a mantle on him and invited him to leave everything to follow him. 
And so he made a decision. Even though I don't have all the details, I can still obey right now. And if I'm going to obey, if I'm going to put myself in the best position to be used by God, then I've got to be holding on to very little. I've got to be willing to trust enough to leave the comfort and security of what I have and to chase Him. It's not easy to do. Not natural to do. But I think what we'll find as we see these first moments of Elisha's story unfold in the Bible, as we go forward and see the things he does and the way God uses him, all of that which will come next is because of these first steps he took. His willingness to let go of things he never had anyway and to take the next step even when he didn't know the details. I, I don't know, again, what that looks like for you. It doesn't have to be something that we think is this huge change. I mean, we in seminary, one of the things that impressed us is our second or third year there, um, a doctor came in, a pediatrician came into seminary with his family who was going to the mission field. He was going to go to Africa and be a, a medical missionary. But he had to leave his practice move his family for a couple years or however long he had to go to seminary to get that degree before he could then move his family with young children to a place we might think of as not as stable and economically viable as, as America. And certainly a profession that didn't provide the economic income and mission work that his pediatrician practice would. We look at those and we, we hold those things up. And those are huge and valid things to admire. But my guess is that for most of us, that's not the thing God's calling us to do next. Not calling you to leave that job and to uproot your family and to to make a huge move. You know, sometimes it's just that little step. I don't know what it is for you, but like Elisha, will you be sensitive to what God might be speaking to your life? Can you trust the relationship with the God who knows you and who cares enough to send his son that you'd make that move, you'd take that action and allow God then to take the rest and write his story through your life? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are God who is at work in our world and who uses us. Lord, I gotta admit sometimes I don't understand why you would use us human beings as fallible and as sinful and as selfish as we can be. But God, you still, in your sovereignty, reach into our lives and desire to use us for your purposes and for your glory. And Lord, I I know as we've come together today and as we've looked at an example in Scripture of Elisha, that each of us face those same kind of moments where you're inviting us to take that first step out of our comfort zone. To to follow and obey immediately, even when we don't have all the details. And to be willing to let go of some things so that we can be available to you. 
Lord, I pray in these moments that you'll speak to our hearts as your, your people. You will, you will convict us where it's needed. You will, you will give us that, even that one word of instruction to trust, to stay, to love, to forgive. Whatever it might be, God, that we would hear your voice in these moments. The prompting of your Holy Spirit moving us to the next place of usefulness for you. And Lord, then we do the hard thing. Because you tell us if we only hear, we're foolish. But it's being doers, it's acting upon what we hear that makes the difference. So Lord, give us the courage and the faith to act upon the thing that you you might have us to do. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you that you want to use us. And now we give you these moments to speak and to move in our hearts and lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name.